This is a Federal News Network podcast. Affective Computing, a family of AI technologies that aim to be able to use biometrics to detect human emotions or someone's state of mind, is a subject of active research in academia and the commercial sector. The Department of Homeland Security has also dabbled with the technology to see if it's able to detect lies among people seeking entry to the country. But our next guest says now is the time to put some boundaries around potential government uses of affective computing. In a recent paper, Alex Engler, the Brookings Institution's Rubenstein Fellow for Governance Studies, argued the president should ban it altogether for federal law enforcement purposes. And Alex joins us now to talk about that argument. Alex, thanks for being with us. And and I think for our listeners, let's just start out for a little bit defining what affective computing is, just to set the stage for what we're talking about here and also to set some boundaries around what you think the the president should ban. Yeah, sure. Excited to talk about this. So effective computing is a pretty broad set of technologies. Almost anything in which a computer is trying to interpret your emotions or personality state is maybe what's going to typically fall into that category. And that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean um, identifying uh, veterans who are at risk of uh, suicide. It's not entirely clear that that works, but that's uh, that's a meaningful application that that might work. Um, it can be driver monitoring systems. Amazon uh, got in some trouble when it put um, effective computing into some of its uh, its delivery trucks that uh, monitor drivers to see if they look tired or not. Right, that's another example. This kind of all falls in that category. Uh, we're trying to sort of learn something about a person about their effective state uh, with um, any type of algorithm. And, and why law enforcement, particularly as an area of concern, in, in terms of a you know a, a presidential level ban only in this one area? Yeah, that's it's a good question, right? Because that's sort of the the tricky part of this is is effective computing, which maybe seems to sort of work sometimes, and there's lots of active, meaningful research about it, but isn't particularly proven or obviously effective broadly. And so what it comes down to is kind of a subjective line in the sand around stakes. It's okay if we use effective computing in circumstances where it is only changing behavior marginally, right? And it's not, you know, that big of an impact. For instance, um, if you were trying to identify veteran risk of suicide, right? Uh, there are lots of other factors you can use. It's going to be that whether or not that person has reached out for help and whether or not the doctor thinks they're high at risk and other factors maybe about their uh, medications, so on and so forth, right? And it's so it's sort of, it's adding a little bit of information to that. What you get worried about is when you're really relying on it as a core part of a big, important issue, right? So if you're going to say, we're going we're gonna to use this to evaluate criminality or lie detection, and you don't really have any other ways to get that information, you're putting too much weight on a thing that doesn't work well enough with really high stakes. And that's where you get worried. It's possible this stuff will work in the long run. It's pretty clearly not there yet, or no one has demonstrated its ability to do this yet. And and that's it, the stakes really what gets you to, to pause. Yeah, and, and that totally makes sense. And but 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 that's part of why I ask about, about whether an outright ban makes sense. And and sort of the, the analogy that, that I think about is the way I understand the FBI has been using facial recognition software in connection with the Capitol rioter arrest. Mm-hmm. And facial recognition, I get it. It's a big, complex, and controversial topic of its own. But the way I understand the FBI has been using that is as only a factor in identifying people and then using some other independent piece of evidence 
to establish probable cause and not solely the facial recognition. So couldn't you see effective computing being used in, in, in a similar way as, as a pointer rather than the sole piece of evidence that you're using against someone? It's possible. Um, and I think there can be a reasonable debate about that. But a big difference I'd like to point out is that when we talk about how well these two technologies work, even the biggest critics of facial recognition don't say it fundamentally can't do the task it's trying to do, right? There is real debate over whether effective computing can do any of the tasks that it's trying to do, right? So facial recognition, we're talking about important flaws in a fundamental system that does accomplish what it can say. That's effective computing, we're talking about, does it work at all, right? And to be honest, I actually look at the federal use of law of facial recognition, law enforcement and federal law enforcement a, a bit from a different perspective. I would say that their use of facial recognition is a bit concerning, um, not because it has no place in law enforcement, but because a lot of agencies and individuals at agencies rushed into using systems that they hadn't evaluated or tested or built best practices around or even documented how and when they're using them. And that's what the recent GAO report says, essentially, that um, law enforcement got way out ahead of its own sort of standards and a more formalized, rigorous process around using it. So I'm, I'm, in some sense, that, that GAO report is actually the impetus for my concern rather than uh, that sort of a justification for the choose. Yeah, and with affective computing, it seems like there's two things going on at once, right? There's there's creepy big brother privacy aspects to it, and there's it doesn't work aspects to it. So I guess the, the question that brings up is it right. is it worse if it doesn't work or is it worse if it does? God, that's a good that's a good question. Um, we will certainly find out soon as this comes to retail stores near you, right? Um, the the private sector is going to roll ahead with effective computing, almost no question. Um, and so if you are bullish on its use, there's actually a lot of reason to think, well, there's going to be money going into this. The industry's growing. You know, you can Google uh, market shares, but they're going to throw large numbers of millions and billions at you. I don't really know which of those are accurate. Um, but the reason the industry might grow really quickly is partially because there's so much facial recognition and uh, camera infrastructure set up. So if you have cameras and facial recognition everywhere, how much harder is it to drop an effective computing algorithm on top that says, well, how happy was this person walking down this aisle of my retail store, right? And so the fact that we already have this infrastructure doesn't make it easy to incrementally add this new technology. And, and I think that's what we're going to see in the commercial space um, pretty soon. Your, your suggestion that the president ban this really only for federal law enforcement agencies, is that is that really just an expediency point, just because it would be more difficult to exclude it from local law enforcement use? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I believe that you could ban the technology for certain uses through Congress under the Commerce Clause, but that would require, you know, Congress. So that's that's your that's your issue right there. And it's probably just on its own doesn't rise to the attention of a pretty distracted Congress at the moment. Um, now, if we pass a larger artificial intelligence policy legislation, which is you know something that's worth thinking about, right, um, as the European uh, Commission is proposing, for instance. Yeah, this might be a thing then when you you consider saying we're going to ban effective computing in particularly important uses. And uh, other people, especially the AI Now Institute, has proposed exactly that. One of the advantages of this proposal goes beyond its use in just federal law enforcement. It signals to local law enforcement that the feds don't think this is a reasonable thing to do. And so because a 
ban at the congressional level for all law enforcement is tricky and um, and perhaps unrealistic in the near term. There's value in doing this at the federal level, even if the feds were never going to do it, right? Um, throw in there that it is kind of reassuring to normal citizens that we're not using your emotions and what your face looks like and what you do with your tone to assess in any circumstances, whether you're telling the truth or whether you're guilty of something. Um, and, you know, I think that's a meaningful way to signal a, a different approach than some of the authoritarian uses of AI that we're seeing out in the rest of the world. So I think there's value in the, in the signal as well. I guess the last thing I wonder here, Alex, is is there are there strong reasons to believe that there is a big federal law enforcement interest in applying some of this stuff right now, or are you just trying to get out ahead of the problem? Yeah, it's, that's a totally fair question, and I think the, the best criticism of my piece, which is to say, no, only a, only a little bit, right? There There is some. Uh, I mentioned local law enforcement has been using eye tracker software, for instance. Um, several governments, including the U.S., the UK and the European Union have funded an exploration into using these for uh, at, usually at the border for for lie detection. Um, that was a program called Avatar. Uh, it did not work, even in an incredibly re- uh, uh, sort of generous circumstances. It did not work, um, and they and it doesn't look like that's been continued. Though um, they did invest in it and test it for a while. Um, and the other thing I'll notice that vendors are certainly starting to make some promises in the effective computing realm that are really suspicious, like criminal intent detection, which let me do very clear, no computing can do that whatsoever. I don't really think criminal intent detection exists at all, right? Um, and so the fact that they're making those claims uh, is a little worrisome, especially if they build tools that individual officers or individual law enforcement um, agencies can use without going through an approval process, without necessarily procuring things. And that is how we start some of the facial recognition um, firms get their foot in the door. For instance, Clearview, right? They built uh, an app that anybody could use. They let people test it and sort of got their foot in the door before uh, going broader. So, but you're, but broadly, it's fair to say this is a, a preventative or sort of preemptive measure. That's true. Alex Angler is the Brookings Institution's Rubenstein Fellow for Governance Studies. We'll link to his piece on affective computing in federal law enforcement at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old, 
Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers as others call them every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship, step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship 
uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <laughs> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. What can you expect at Adelphi University? Don't expect ordinary, because this is where extraordinary happens every day. Classes, smaller, professors, more like mentors, graduating salaries, higher than the national average. Exceptional undergraduate, graduate, and adult programs with career guidance that's won national recognition. Wherever you're going, whatever your age, expect extraordinary. Adelphi University. Learn more. Adelphi.edu slash exceptional.